Let's pray. Father, we cannot always trace your hand, but we can trust your heart. So speak to us now in the power of your Holy Spirit. May the power that raised Christ from the dead be at work in our hearts this morning. We pray this for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. I'm here to admit to you that I've lost my faith. Said Prince Philip to a group of burnt out Anglican ministers in 1969. This is during season three of the Netflix show, The Crown. Philip calls these Anglican clergy poor blocked souls. I'm here to admit to you, he said, that I've lost my faith. And without it, what is there? The Duke of Edinburgh was restless in Dean Wood's cottage, in George's cottage, and he was wondering, 1969, he was wondering if the answer was in the moon landing, having just met Neil Armstrong. But he decides that the answer is not in the moon landing. He says, and I quote from the Crown, he says, the loneliness, the emptiness, the anticlimax of going all the way to the moon to find nothing but haunting desolation, ghostly silence, gloom. That is what losing faith is, as opposed to finding wonder, ecstasy, the miracle of divine creation, God's divine and purpose, which you find, by the way, in Job 38 through 41. Prince Philip goes on, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that the solution to our problems is not in the ingenuity of the rocket, or in the science, or in the technology, or even the bravery. No, he says, the answer is in here, and in here, or wherever it is, he says, faith resides. And so, Dean Woods, having ridiculed you for what you and these poor blocked souls were trying to achieve here at St George's House, I now find myself full of respect and admiration and not a small part of desperation as I come to you and say, help, help me. The book of Job is here to help. Here and here. As Dr. Timothy Keller in New York City says, the book of Job faces the issue of suffering with more emotional realism, intellectual integrity, and practical wisdom than any other book of the Bible, or any other book of world, perhaps any other book of world literature. And yet for all the wonder in the vision of the end of the book of Job, faith doesn't reside here or here. Job found out, we learned yesterday, that the answer is not here or here. The answer is in God. Faith's object is the goodness and power of God. Jesus summed it up when he said, look at the birds, consider the lilies. I think in many ways summing up the end of the book of Job. Jesus said, how much more will he care for you, O you of little faith? C.S. Lewis said this, he said, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. 
before your face, questions die away, what other answer would suffice? Job is a book about wrestling with God and suffering. It's not just a book, a general book about suffering and patience and how to help somebody through it. It's a book for people who believe in God. If you are an atheist here today, then you should have no problem with suffering. There is no rhyme, no reason. We are but subjects of our DNA and we dance to its music, as Richard Dawkins once said. Job is a book about wrestling with God in suffering. And as a pastor, I've sat with many people in suffering, as you have too, and I've seen amazing patience and endurance. A Nigerian poet once said, when suffering knocks at your door, those of you at the conference will know this quote, I hope, when suffering knocks at your door and you say that there is no seat for him, he tells you not to worry, he has brought his own stool. Job is a wealthy man who lost everything and he doesn't know why. The reader knows why. You're a part of the story. You know from chapters 1 and 2 that the cynic, the ultimate cynic, Satan himself, claimed that God was wrong about Job. That Job only loves God for the stuff. Satan will call it the hedge around him. Take away the stuff, remove the hedge, and he'll walk away. It happens all the time. People walk away. So the stuff is taken away in a tsunami of pain. And Job sees no rhyme, no reason, no method in the madness. And he sits down to what we've been calling the jigsaw puzzle of his life. And he says, the puzzle doesn't work. The pieces don't fit. Uh, the pieces aren't all there. His friends say, no, the pieces are all there. You've just got to make them fit. They say, you must have sinned greatly to be suffering so greatly. And so Job, in many ways, the book validates our lived experience where when suffering, when brought his seat and he's got a stool and he's there with you despite wishing to shoo him out of the door, Job validates our lived experience where you appear to get nothing from God and nothing but talk from your friends. But Job hasn't sinned, we find out from chapter 42, when the calm comes. Job is vindicated before his friends, and God is vindicated before the cynic, the accuser. But in the middle of the muck, Job thinks God is in the wrong. In fact, God will say to him, chapter 40, verse 8, God will say to him, would you condemn me to justify yourself? Because the friends are condemning Job to justify God. And God says to Job, you're going to condemn me and justify yourself? Job wants three things in the middle of the book of Job. He wants, one, God to show up. Two, he wants vindication. And three, he wants an explanation. God does show up. We looked at that yesterday morning. He gets vindication. That's in chapter 42. But no explanation. What do they say? Two out of three ain't bad. Now, you might not like God's answer to Job or the resolution to the book of Job. You might not even think it's a resolution. And the test would be, if this were a movie, would you want your money back? Job gets no explanation. No, like, okay, look, there was a conversation. 
with Satan, as you do, and he said this. I said this, he said that. That would have been nice, but he doesn't get it. So my question to you, if, if you read the book, is do you find it satisfying? Well, the important thing to say is Job does. He gets up on his feet. That's important. All his questions melt away. He says in 42 verse 5, he says, My ears had heard of you, but now something new has happened. But now my eyes have seen you. Before, if you can put it this way, it was all talk for him, all information. Important and good, but now something new, something beautiful. Remember the Lewis quote? You yourself are the answer. Before your face, all questions die away. Yesterday we looked at God showing up the first time. In today's passage, God shows up a second time. The first time God shows him his power and knowledge of creation as well as his care of it. That's important and new for some of us as we look at Job. And Job responds in humility, chapter 40, verse 4. Right? I will proceed no further. I lay my hand on my mouth. I will proceed no further. But the Lord keeps going. He's got more to say. God answers Job out of the storm, the whirlwind, a second time in 40 verse 7 and says, a second time, dress for action like a man. Brace yourself. I will question you. You will answer me. On your feet, boy. On your feet. So two questions this morning, if you're following the outline. Firstly, what happens when Job meets God? And secondly, what happens if you meet this God? Firstly, what happens when Job meets God? Well, the truth is Job doesn't meet God. God meets him. Job wants to give God a piece of his mind. God gives Job a piece of his heart. Job wants to pepper God with statements. God will pepper him with questions. God takes Job, firstly, on a disorientating tour through his creation to get him back on his feet again, solid ground for wobbly feet. And God's questions, we learned this yesterday, are not so, not so much about his control over creation, although they are, so much as his, in, his loving involvement in it. The questions are humorous and playful. Remember the ostrich? She's not that beautiful. She's not that smart. But when she flaps her wings, she flies and leaves the horse in the dust. So it's levitas via gravitas, right? Lightness via heaviness. God is lifting Job up. In fact, God is zooming out for Job for perspective. And not the perspective we often give. Come on, you're not suffering as badly as those people over there in that country over there. It's not that. The perspective, rather, of God himself is zooming out to get Job's eyes up to God rather than down in his dust and ashes. In fact, God is giving Job new eyes. Maybe he can give you and I new eyes this morning. It's as if God is saying to Job, Job, I am the same caring God now than I was then. And if I can craft the world that is more glorious than anything you can imagine, then I can craft the story of your life in ways that you can't possibly dream of. 
But God has more to say. And in, cha- in these chapters read to us a moment ago, God is saying, you're accusing me of injustice in this instance. So 40 verse 8, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be in the right? And God invites Job to consider the damage done through the proud and the wicked in the world and says, if you can do something about it, go ahead. The whole point is you can't. Consider, says God, all the injustice in the world, all the slavery, all the abuse, all the lies, all the regimes, all the oppression. You feel oppressed, Job? I get that. You want to correct me? You want to say that I am unjust? That I'm the bad one and that you're the good one? But seriously, Job, are you above it? Are you across it all? And that's in 40 verses 1 to 14. He says in 40 verse 9, Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? No, you don't. No, you can't. But if you think you do have an arm like God and can thunder with a voice like his, then verse 10, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. These are the attributes of the Almighty. He clothes himself in majesty and power. We are to clothe ourselves in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience because we follow Jesus Christ. Job, if you think that you get justice and I don't, then verse 11, you pour out the overflowings of your anger. Unleash it, Job, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him if you think you can. Job, if you think you are the answer to world injustice, verse 13, then hide them all, the unjust ones, in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below. You put them in the grave. You can't. And if you can stop, you think you can stop injustice, then God, God says, verse 14, then I will also acknowledge you that you that your own right hand can save you. If you can do all that, I'll say you can save yourself. This, of course, is not a challenge to vigilantism. The point is you can't do any of that. And anybody who thinks they can are kidding themselves. This, of course, this entire concept is the premise of the movie Bruce Almighty. Morgan Freeman is... Morgan Freeman is God, of course. It's the voice. And God says to the Bruce, he says, you have a problem with me, Bruce? Let's see what the universe looks like when it bends to your will. Your little will. When it's a, may my will be done on earth as it is in my own mind. If I can twist the Lord's Prayer. And yet the concept of my private will, the thing that matters to me, self-determination, is at the heart, of course, of Western secularism. It's all about me, my will. And it works for a few moments until you realise it's just dust. It's, it's nothing. It cuts no teeth. But it doesn't stop us from being judgmental, assessing everyone against my own will. I find the last 30 years have been interesting, and I don't know if you believe this, but 30 years ago, I remember people talking about not judging other people's values. Remember that? You couldn't have value judgments. Do you remember that? Now you can judge people's hearts. Something's happened in the last 30 years. 
Now we want to judge people and hold them to account for our own, against our own standards. Is there any other way to explain all the outrage that exists in Western culture right now and the change in the last 30 years? But God is saying to Job and maybe to us, I'm the judge. I'm the judge. The upshot here in 40 verses 1 to 14 is, come forward, you who think God is unjust, and tell me again how you determine what is just and unjust and how you'll police it. In Isaiah 29, God says, you turn things upside down as though the potter were thought to be like the clay. I'll say that again. You turn things upside down, humanity, as though the potter, God, were thought to be like the clay, as if you could mould him to your will. Can the pot, Job, say to the potter, God, you know nothing? That's all in Isaiah. So first, with respect to justice, are you above and across it all? And secondly, with respect to fear, if you're following the outline, can you put a leash on what is most terrifying? The rest of our passage, from 40 verse 15, right the way through to the end of 41, is consumed with two creatures, two beasts. God says, in 40 verse 15, Behold behemoth. Okay, there it is. Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you, in the same way that I made you. So that's the end of chapter 40. And consider the Leviathan. From chapter, the whole of chapter 41, can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook and press down his tongue with a cord? The first time I heard the word behemoth was on The Simpsons. <laughs> Huge camper van that Homer coveted. No, Mr. Simpson. Have you ever known a siren to be a good siren? The first time I heard the word Leviathan was in Philosophy 101 at university. Uh, The 17th century thinker Thomas Hobbes wrote a book called Leviathan. It was about the state, about government. Uh, That is, it is a beast. Some say the behemoth described in 40 verses 15 to 29 is a hippo, a hippopotamus. Some say the Leviathan described in 41 is a crocodile. That's possible. There's a minority reading that sees them as dinosaurs. Another reading in another commentary that I didn't use as a stand for my... (laughs) In another commentary, uh, the Leviathan is seen as Satan from chapters 1 and 2 that God can tame and put a leash on. Most likely they are mythical sea monsters. Not that those who heard this believed in them, maybe they did, but rather they are symbols or classic objects of fear, a way of talking about something that terrifies me, something enormous. Perhaps the closest word we get to today is to talk about the boogeyman. Do you have that? Okay. The boogeyman, or in Russia, Baba Yaga. John Wick fans. The beast, or the beasts here, are our greatest fear, our objects of terror, symbols of the worst kind of evil. And the point here in these verses is, God tames them, sovereign over them. Of the behemoth 
in 40 verse 16, 40 verse 16, behold his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. It's huge. 40 verse 19, yet the one who made it, God, can approach it with a sword, can just drop the thing dead. You might be afraid of it, like the storm, like the whirlwind, but God is bigger than it. And the upshot of the behemoth is a single question to Job in 40 verse 24, can you take him by the eyes, can you pierce his nose with a snare? God can go fishing for this thing you're afraid of and just whip it up in his net. The implication is, I have a leash on evil and you don't. That's the point. Of the Leviathan, God says to Job, 41 verse 33, 41 verse 33, on earth there is not his like, none like him, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high, he is king over the sons of pride. You're worried about the proud and the wicked Job. The Leviathan looks down on them. And yet God tames the Leviathan. God's bigger than the thing you're afraid of. The descriptions are long and terrifying, as you heard a moment ago, like the defeated dragon in the book of Revelation. There's fire breathing, even. Isn't that fascinating? Fire breathing. 41 verse 18. His sneathings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. And you can't handle it, Job. 41 verse 8. You lay your hand on him. Remember the battle, you will not do it again. You'll not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. What are you afraid of? The passage here in many ways is saying you can't win on your your own, by yourself. No human can defeat it. 41 verse 25, when the Leviathan raises himself up, the mighty are afraid and the, cra- and the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart or the javelin. Verse 29, a club seems to it like a piece of straw. Plastic or, do you have the paper ones? It's just all nothing. But the point is, God has control over your fears. God can defeat that which is ultimately evil. And he asked Job a dozen questions to make the point in 41 verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook and press, it, press down his tongue with a cord? I can. I can fish this thing and gut it before breakfast, says God. Verse 2, can you put a rope in his nose right, and pierce its jaw with a hook? And will the Leviathan make pleas to you, begging you, right? Will he speak to you in soft words? Oh, please, 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 God, please. Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? That thing you're afraid of, I am more powerful than ultimate evil. I can leash it. And one of my favorite verses in Job, chapter 41, verse 5, will you play with the Leviathan as with a bird? And will you put the Leviathan on a leash for your girls? Are you going to give this thing to your daughters as a pet? Here's the truth being said here. By the way, you concrete thinkers, God is not saying he's going to take Satan and give it to your daughters as a pet. That's not what's being said here. (laughs) The point is, 
you know, party in God's hands. Here's the truth. Every truly powerless person needs a higher power. And without God in the world, and even with God in the world, that's why we have advocates, that's why we have police, that's why we have courts that we hope function with wisdom and justice. But what, what do we do with ultimate terrors? We have an ultimate God. What do we do with the ultimate terror? What about the sin living within me? No government can do anything about that. Let's call that the behemoth, just for a moment. What power or victory can happen over sin? What about world injustice that we only see a glimpse of? And death itself, what about that? And what about Satan? Let's call him the Leviathan. I'm going to need the highest power to defeat the ultimate evil. God is the highest power. That's the point of these verses. A point made about the Leviathan in Psalm 104, and you can look that up, if you like, later. But better still, in Psalm 107, 107 about the storm. Listen to these words. For God spoke and stirred up a tempest and lift high the waves. Those who went out on ships cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. God stilled the storm to a whisper and the waves of the sea were hushed. What does that remind you of? Jesus calmed the storm, the one the disciples were afraid of. Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord himself, calming the storm. That's why the disciples were even more afraid when they said, who is this that even calms the storm? Jesus is bigger than the storm. No wonder they were more afraid of who was in the boat than the storm itself. I've gone a bit Anglican. I'm sorry about that. I'm now commenting on stained glass windows, which I swore I'd never do, but um, I get older. At the Garrison Church, which is one of the two churches, the one that I filmed from, right, the one with the Union Jack, in the northern wall of the church is what they call the Summerbell window. And you won't be able to see it enormously here, but you get a sense of it. The Somerville window was put there in 1878 by the parents of William George Somerville, who in 1875 drowned in a boating accident off Newcastle, which is about two hours' drive from north of Sydney in Australia. And the parents, of course, did what you would do, which is to spiral into some grief. And yet they commissioned and, uh, and had this uh, St. Glass window put in, into the garrison church. What do you do if you lose your son to a storm? I'll tell you what you do. You put two panels, one of Jesus calming the storm, that's on the left-hand side, and the other one of Jesus walking on water. They lost their boy, but Jesus is still Lord even in the storm. And you say, but does that mean that I don't have to grieve? You can't see it, but across the bottom panel in white above the orange, right at the bottom, is Psalm 60-something, where it says, the waters, uh, 
Be near me, O God, for the waters have come into my soul. It's not that they're not grieving, they are. But even in the midst of their grief, they say there is someone greater than the storm. They had what you might call resurrection hope. They believed that Jesus walked out of the tomb. Amen? That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, For I am sure, I am convinced, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the behemoth nor the leviathan, nor anything that you're afraid of, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So, lastly, what happens if you meet this God? I believe that you'll meet the same Jesus Christ who calmed that storm then. You'll meet Jesus Christ risen from the dead. I believe that. Come to him this morning. Here's what happened to Job. He gets new eyes. 41 verse, 42 verse 1, 42 verse 1, Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things. I know you're truly free, God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is not you can do it, so I'll cop it. That's not this. This is not Islam's inshallah. God wills it, it happened. That's not this. Rather, you can take all my questions, all my doubts, you can take all my judgments against you, God, all my fears, all my sadness, all my sense of entitlement that often, often comes with sadness, and they melt away in your presence. Job responds to the two things that God has said. First, God said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Who speaks without knowing he couldn't have known so why did he speak so much he should have had epistemic humility just a little humility about what he couldn't know but understandable given the grief job said therefore i have uttered what i did not understand i was hurting but i spoke above my pay grade things too wonderful for me which i did not know basically he's saying god knows a to z he knows the entirety whereas job could only know peter q as you and I can only know Peter Q. Sometimes we think we know Peter R, but we're kidding ourselves. <laughs> but A to Z is, is too wonderful for me. His plan from creation to new creation, from death to resurrection. And second, since God has said, hear and I will speak, I will question you and make it known to me, Job replied, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now, Something new has happened. My eye has seen you. And I wonder if that could happen to some here this morning. My ears had heard of you. I feared God and I shunned evil. I cared for the vulnerable, he said. But perhaps a lot of it was just sort of information running around my head because of what I'd heard from a youth group long ago or turning up to church. But now, something new. My eyes have seen you. Have you ever had an experience like that, a moment where, you know, you heard a lot, but you saw for the first time? It often happens that for that moment when someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 42, verse 6, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, if you're here on Friday night, chapter 42, verse 6, is hard to translate in the Hebrew. 
the word myself is not there and the English writers have tried to help us because you have to despise something. You can't say, therefore I despise. Someone said that, you'd say, well, what do you despise? So they've tried to help us. But there's a verb there translated despise. And I think possibly it means something like, therefore I surrender. I recant, I give up, I despise the, I was, I'm pretty sure I'm right and God is wrong. In chapter 31, at the climax of Job's speeches, he says, oh, that the Almighty would come and that he would write down his indictment against me. If he wrote down his indictment against me, I would wear it like a paper crown. He says, I'm giving up my paper crown. I repent, I turn around, and I do it in dust and ashes. Or maybe even I repent of the dust and ashes, i.e. it's time to get up. What will happen if you meet this God? I believe that you will get up again. With endurance and patience, as James says of Job. You'll meet Jesus and you will rise with him from the dust. And so it's time to get up again. You've suffered. And if you haven't, this book will help prepare you ahead of the diagnosis. This book is not a guarantee that you'll experience what Job experienced in chapter 42. It all returns back to him and more so. In fact, when James says to consider Job, he says, consider his patience and consider what the Lord brought about. Not to say that you will be blessed in the same way, not in this life necessarily, but rather consider God. He's the kind of God who blesses. All was returned to Job, including the redemption of a new family, and I know that's complex. And you may not experience the blessing that he had in this life, but you can have what Job had to stand firm till the end, to be vindicated in your faith despite the obvious around you. You can have resurrection power in this life ahead of the resurrection from the dead. One commentator in Job said this, if the nature poems of 38 and 39 speak to us of divine wisdom, Behemoth and Leviathan point us to divine power. But in God's hands, power is never coercive, but always creative. It is the New Testament which fills out the truth that the divine power is the power of love manifest in Jesus. God has all the power, all the knowledge. God will destroy all evil and all injustice. He can take your greatest fears and tame them. All your questions melt away like mist. And he does that through the love and life of Jesus Christ. You see, there's so much that Job didn't get to see because he had no idea how the story would unfold. He didn't know that God was coming down, not in the terror of a whirlwind, but the frailty of a human being, and that one day Christ himself would lose it all, stripped naked, overcome by pain, pain that even Job never experienced. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But there's an answer to that question. And it's in that question that we find the answer to ours. God's speech shows in a profound way God's power, his care, his justice and his victory over evil and even Satan himself. All of those things are found in the life work 
of the man who chose the dust and ashes of the earth and in their death for us. He went there to bury our greatest fears and he rose again the victor over injustice. This is our gospel. We wait for the resurrection of the dead. This is our help when we cry, help me. And it is this word that is able to lift us up and out again of the dust and the ashes. Let's pray. I'm just going to pray two hymns that you might like to put on Spotify on the way home. For your joy and uh, faith, let's pray. Father, be thou my vision, a ruler of all. What does the hymn say? Christ of my own heart, whatever befall. And we believe that much could still befall us. Christ of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, a ruler of all. Lord, we pray along with Horatio Spafford, who lost his daughters in a boating accident. He can say those sea billows, sorrows and sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. We pray that we'll be able to say that when the suffering comes, but even more than that, we'll be able to say, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is victor and Lord of all. Amen.